life of the sinner in the Ten Commandments and decided that he had diagnosed a breach between us and God. God comes to close that breach. That's the confession of Martin Luther. And Luther goes on with the second part of his catechism, the creed, to, uh, to talk about the God who has uh, created us for fellowship with him, who has come to pursue us when we've run away, who bridges that gap that we've opened up. He does that in the creed. What's the word creed mean, Chuck? Well, the word creed originally comes from the Latin word credo, which were the first, or which was the first word that he spoke of the creed in Latin, namely, I believe. And it has its roots or can trace its origins back to the early church and baptism in particular. When uh, at the point of baptism, the candidate would be asked the questions, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you believe in God the Son? At which point the candidate would say, I believe. Or I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So it's a, a summary of our faith. Yes, and I'm thinking a twofold way. Uh, first of all, I think it's helpful to recognize how Luther explains the creed uh, and how he talks about faith. Uh, I think in our day and age, we are accustomed to thinking of faith perhaps in one of two ways. And these two ways are two dangers I think they have to be avoided. One is to think of faith only as a matter of the head, kind of intellectual knowledge, uh, knowledge of facts. It's like saying, uh, do you believe that it's going to rain today? Or do you believe uh, that dragons existed once upon a time? Uh, it, kind of a knowledge that maybe or maybe does not really affect how we live in any significant way. I believe that two plus two is four, uh, an intellectual knowledge. That's one side. Uh, the other side is to think of faith merely or exclusively as a matter of the heart. And I think this is probably a danger that uh, Christians in our day and age, or Americans in particular, tend to fall into. Uh, this can be expressed in the kind of language that you hear. Well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in what you believe. Or uh, you may find bracelets. Uh, a few years ago, um, an employer here in St. Louis handed out uh, keychains that simply had the word on it, believe. It didn't say believe what? Um, simply believe. At that point, uh, it's exclusively a matter of the heart and is detached from any um, objective content or person uh, outside of the believing. I think what Luther does in his treatment of the creed is he actually manages to bind these two together so that they cannot be separated. And he does this, um, I think, in a couple ways. Uh, first of all, he focuses primarily on the activities of God in our life. So it's not simply believing facts about God, for example, that God is omniscient or that God is uh, omnipresent, that is, God knows everything and God is present everywhere, but rather recognizing that God is actively involved in my life. He, so, you know, look at the verbs that he uses throughout his explanation of the articles. God creates, God provides. God preserves, God gives, God defends, God protects, or Jesus redeems, he rescues, uh, or the Holy Spirit calls me, he enlightens me, gathers me into the church. So these are all verbs that highlight God's personal 
and active involvement in our lives. The second thing he that does, though, is he brings out the Reformation emphasis on faith as uh, faith for me. That believing facts or believing the story doesn't do you much good until you recognize that this story is for you and there's a promise attached to it. So, in a sense, because he's teaching children, I think he's kind of teaching them to talk faith talk. It's uh, like talking baby talk, he might say, uh, by way of an analogy. He doesn't actually talk about faith anywhere in the creed. He simply talks uh, how faith expresses itself. So, I believe that God has made me, or that God has given me body and soul, or God preserves me, and God protects me, God rescues me, God calls me. In this way, I learn how faith talks in such a way that I appropriate to myself, that I receive and I apply what God has done in our lives to myself. Well, I recognize, at least, that I am very much a participant within this story. And the story really begins when God says, I am your God. Uh, what you've just said kind of pointed my mind back to the first commandment again. Does Luther make that association too between, the, say, the first article particularly and the first commandment? Uh, there's a very close connection. Uh, the first commandment says you will have no other gods beside me. Uh, it presupposes that either there are no other gods or if there are other gods, these are gods that are part of creation, that are creaturely themselves, but somehow have been elevated or promoted to the status of being God. Uh, so the first article of the creed really is the foundation and the backdrop for the first commandment. And this is why the doctrine of creation is so important. It establishes an absolute distinction between the creator and creation. So the first commandment, in many ways, is simply saying, don't confuse who is who. <laughs> what I find interesting also, both about the Apostles' Creed and then what Luther does in his explanation, is that he recognizes, or he doesn't, um, define God or describe God uh, by talking about God's attributes necessarily. He really doesn't have a discussion on God's um, God being present everywhere, God being all-powerful, God being um, all-knowing, or God being simple, God being uh, uh, spirit, you know, all of those kinds of attributes. Uh, being an Old Testament scholar, I think he's rooted in the thought road of the Old Testament and captures this pretty well. So that I think if a person was going to take out a help wanted ad in the newspaper and the position that you're advertising for is the position of God. Okay, we're taking applicants for the position of God or for the job of being God. What are the qualifications that you need to have in order to apply for the job of being God? The simple answer would be, if you created everything that exists, you're God. If you did not create everything that exists, you need not apply for the position. So, so how does uh, Luther then expand on or expound um, that fundamental uh, confession? Of creator of heaven and earth? Yeah. Uh, I think he does it in a way that's somewhat unexpected and perhaps a little surprising uh, to us. Uh, because the Apostles' Creed seems to look at the big picture. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. It seems to look at the, the big picture. 
And I suppose in our day and age, that would be a way of saying that God has created everything from A to Z, from the largest galaxy to the smallest microbe. And what I find interesting, though, is that Luther, here as he does throughout the catechism, is kind of reading life, as one of our friends, Jim Nestigan, put it, reading life from the bottom up. He's reading human life to some extent as we experience it and encounter it. So rather than taking an approach that we might take today, for example, that in the beginning God created the heaven and earth, that is to say that God created over 40 billion galaxies. And on the outer edge of the great wall of galaxies, he created this medium-sized spiral galaxy called the Milky Way. And about two-thirds out from the center of that galaxy, he created this ordinary yellow star with about nine planets, or eight planets now, we're told. And the third planet he uh, is Earth that he created. And, oh, by the way, he also created us. Instead, what Luther does is he takes the child by the hand and begins with our personal existence, the fact that we are alive. And, so, and then he works from the center out. So he begins his explanation with the fact that God has created me. He has given me my body and soul. This is where I first and most directly encounter God's creative activity. The fact that I exist, the fact that I'm alive. And when I recognize that I am a creature, which Luther regards as perhaps the highest title that we can have, to be a human creature, to be the handiwork of God. He then takes us by the hand and leads us out into other, leads us out into life to experience and receive as a gift what God has given us to support this body and soul. So, for example, he then moves into the next circle where he talks about what we might call the basic necessities of life today. That is the fact that God has given me uh, clothing and shoes to keep my body warm. Uh, food and drink to nourish me, uh, house and home uh, to provide both um, uh, the basic uh, necessities, or you might say livelihood of life, uh, spouse and children to provide me with emotional support, and then all my goods and all my possessions. From there, particularly in the large catechism then, he takes us by the hand to receive all of life as God's gift. In this case, we're dealing now with government weather, the uh, very makeup of the world. Um, now, some might say that this seems like a very human-centered approach, that we are somehow at the center of the universe, and if, any, if astronomy has taught us anything, it's uh, that we don't appear to be at the center geographically of the universe, at least. But I think what Luther is trying to do is more cultivate the eyes of faith so that we receive all of life as God's gift. And so he begins, I suppose, somewhat um, existentially uh, in terms of where I first and most directly encounter God's creative work and then leads me by the hand to receive the entire world and universe as God's creation as well. And, and we receive from our creator all the wonderful things that, that he wants to give us. Luther often talks about God as a, a, a promising God, a God who gives us his word and then delivers on it. Does, does that part of Luther's theology play itself out uh, in the first article? 
It's a certainly a, a prominent part of Luther's theology, to be sure. And there, were, there are two ways in which you could say this is played out. There's the first, God's blessing that was placed in the creation at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, when God um, said that the creation was very good, when he gave the promise or command for the earth to yield forth its bounty uh, and so forth. But those promises, that word of God is still in effect. So that in spite of sin, in spite of our best efforts um, to destroy this world, the earth continues to bear forth its bounty. Uh, God's promise continues to be effective. Or similarly, despite human evil and human atrocities, God continues to create new babies, a new generation, time and again. At the same time, I suppose there is a hint of looking ahead to the second article, particularly with the last line of Luther's treatment of the first article in the small catechism. Now, all these things God does out of uh, fatherly goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in us. Uh, there is a recognition by Luther that as creator, uh, we do not choose to be created, that creation is a matter of sheer generosity on God's part. So that there's a connection between the first and the second article, just as you and I are uh, saved by faith alone, by grace alone, just as we are justified as a sheer gift on God's part. So we were created without any merit or worthiness. That is to say, uh, we are created, I suppose you could say, by grace, although I know that's more kind of a uh, salvation word, but you could say that we're saved uh, by God's goodness and God's action alone. And so, what you're suggesting is that, that the first article lays the basis for our understanding, first of all, that we are creatures, and when we don't correspond to God's plan for our creatureliness, we fall into sin. But then, what you're saying, I think, is that the, the God who created us in the first place uh, is a God of, of goodness, a, a God who is in love with his creatures and wants to help them, and in our sinful state then, he comes as our redeemer to help us. That will be the subject of the second article, the subject of our next session.